I know some of us are new to retreat practice, especially being um, on retreat for, for a week like this. And I was reflecting on a piece of advice that um, Mel had offered on one of the first retreats that I sat that has been very meaningful for me and very helpful to me. And, um, and what he said was something like, um, when you think about trying to sit for seven days, you know, be mindful for seven days, be present for seven days with everything, um, it's impossible, you know. Um, and that um, even to sit for an hour, be mindful for an hour, you know, it's like, what? How can, you know, it's, um, and maybe much better, maybe much more, um, not only more skillful and helpful, but more true in a way, is that if we, if we feel a need to measure our practice or define our practice, um, let it be in moments, you know, um, to be here for this moment, and this moment, and this moment, and this moment. And um, that all we have are moments, you know, and um, It just takes a moment to see impermanence. It just takes a moment to have insight. It just takes a moment to let go. You know, the Buddha talked about in a finger snap. Um, so, so time itself and our ideas of time are something that um, sometimes cannot be that that useful or helpful. So, so just this reorienting around this moment, this timeless moment. And with the trust, with the confidence, with the um, appreciation that no moment of presence is ever wasted. No moment of mindfulness is ever wasted. No moment of kindness is ever wasted. Um, and then in a way, everything opens up and it's rather than meditation being something that is easy or difficult that I can do well or that I can do badly that I can get right or I can get wrong it's like I can be here for a moment you know and to keep returning to the moment to keep connecting with the moment with the truth of the moment that's practice that's what practice is you know to let things be dharma, let things be truth, connect to the truth of the moment. So um, just that, that teaching for me shifts something. So, so practice is not so much about a technique, but about this um, this uh, returning this homecoming, reconnecting, um, arriving. Uh, and so this is one of the paradoxes of practice maybe, that we're on a path, but this path doesn't 
go somewhere else. It's not leading somewhere else. You know, it's so this image of returning the light, you know, turning the light back um, over and over again, we come back. And, um, and and I think one of the gifts of retreat practice is that this container is um, set up to support this coming back, support this returning. So everything that we do here, the instructions and guided meditations in the morning and Dharma talks and um, individual practice discussions with the teachers. It's all in the support of this um, uh, letting, letting things be Dharma, letting this moment be enough, letting us have enough um, inspiration and confidence and trust that this moment uh, is enough. And whatever we're experiencing in this moment is what we're experiencing. And um, I think in, in our lives, there can be a, um, a lot of emphasis on the content of our experience, the what, you know, and we're always arranging things and, and figuring things out. And, but in this practice, um, the shift is in not so much of the what's happening, but um, the, how I am with it, the relationship, how am I relating to it? And when we allow this relationship to be the practice, then It takes so much of the pressure off of to have some kind of experience. Oh, well, it has to be this way. It should be this way. Or, oh, it was calm. Now the calm is gone. Or, oh, you know, um, you know, that it's, it's, we can, we can release that. Let things be as they are. Let, let conditions um, swell and then subside. And we can rest back, sit back and rest in the knowing. And, and then it's like whatever happens, just that we're here for it, just that we know it, just that we see it, um, that's the practice. That's really it. Um, and one of the um, movements of retreat practice is in this deepening of presence and deepening of relaxation, um, there can be a revealing. Things are revealed to us. We don't have to go looking for them. The things are revealed. And, and one of the things, or sometimes something, one of the things that's revealed are what we have been maybe pushing away. You know, so in that relaxation and in that ease and in that um, attitude of acceptance, you know, um, 
everything, where things come back, where things come up. And um, I, I heard recently that um, Ajahn Chah, one of the, one of the great uh, meditation masters of the last recent time, called these the orphans of consciousness. You know, the, the, what comes back? What comes back when we, we stop trying to control experience and squeeze it and make it be what we want it to be? And, and so these or orphans of consciousness, and can we meet them too with kindness? Can we meet them too with awareness and bless them with, with our kindness and our love and our care and our mindfulness? Um, so, so, and, and so the, the practice that we talk about a lot is, is mindfulness, is connecting with the moment, um, this capacity to, to know our experience as it is, and, um, as beautiful as this quality of mindfulness is, it is also onward leading and something that helps to unfold and cultivate other beautiful qualities of the heart. Um, these, these qualities are, are sometimes referred to as the factors of awakening, the factors of enlightenment. Um, so there's mindfulness, uh, there's investigation, investigation of dharmas. Um, there's energy or effort, is the third one. And then joy, tranquility, samadhi, concentration, and equanimity. And and the idea is that these are qualities of the heart, qualities of the mind that can be cultivated, can be de developed and support each other um, in the service of letting go, in the service of non-clinging. So um, in our talks this week, we'll be, we'll be exploring these seven factors and Yeah, maybe just to say about them that they are capacities or qualities that each of us already have. And um, through the simple, uh, continuous application of mindfulness, um, willingness to be present, willingness to show up for our experience just as it is, these, these beautiful qualities have a chance to uh, show themselves.
be one other um, one other thing is that um, when I was uh, just remembering this other piece of advice that that I found very helpful instead. When I was uh, entering the Zen monastery, there's a period of, of intense sitting. So it's, I think it's five days, three days or five days of just sitting nonstop. So, you know, it's not broken up with bells and, and <laughs> it's sort of a, a ritual or a rite of passage. And, um, so Jim Roshi was, was the teacher for, for this practice period. And I remember he gave a talk to us new monks uh, coming in and said something about, um, it's like if you're going somewhere on a trip and you have some luggage with you, some baggage, um, if, you, if you can't put it down, if you, have, if you have to carry it with you everywhere you go, at some point, you know, no matter what it is, no matter how it's your favorite shirt, it's your favorite toothpaste, it's your, you know, at some point, if you have to carry your bags all the time, the whole trip, every day, every moment, every at some point, it's not worth it. And you can put it down. You can let it go. And, and, and there's a way that retreat practice and, and having the opportunity to um, really be with ourselves and really be with our mind, um, we get to see so clearly what is not, what, what's too heavy? What don't I need anymore? What can I put down? What can I let go? So I just offer that as another little um, gem that has helped me very much on retreat. And, uh, so thank you. Pretty good. That's pretty good. That's good. That's good. Okay. Thank you. And this is oh, a clip. Okay. I'll clip it. Good evening. <laughs> so uh, I've been asked uh, to talk about um, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Uh, I was struck by um, Max's allusion to um, uh, the orphan um, analogy. 
And uh, sometimes we say, when we first sit down, we say, some people, most people say, oh, now I'm home. I finally found my home. This is why most people practice or continue to practice. They sit down and <coughs> there's no place to go. <laughs> and we say, oh, I finally found my home. So this is uh, called taking refuge. Um, in a sense, even though we have blood families and so forth, still we're all orphans looking for our true home. Um, most of the great Zen masters, many of them, uh, were orphans. They had no parents. Uh, and then they had to really look for what, they didn't have anything to fall back on. Um, and they had to find their true home. So they were forced to do this. When we have all the comforts of family, it's different. It can be different. Uh, <clears throat> because we have something to fall back on. When everything's taken away, that's when we really have to scramble. It's good for us. <laughs> you know, Zen practice is uh, to take everything away from you and find yourself. Basically, that's the practice. Even though we don't really all understand that, or we forget it, or um, ignore it, but that's where it goes. It goes to what is real? What is your true home and refuge? So sometimes we say Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. We take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. When we have some kind of ordination, we say, I take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. But also, sometimes we say, I now I return to Buddha. Now I return to Dharma. Now I return to Sangha. Um, it's like someplace that you left, but you've been there before. And uh, uh, you can think of it in various ways. We think of it in various ways. You can think of it as when I was born, I'm just making this up, when I was born, um, uh, I was uh, given this task of finding out where I was. Where I came from. Am I going to where I came from? That's an interesting question. Am I going to where I came from? Uh, Hakuin had a, a, a little saying, going to the coming from be going to the coming from uh, going to the coming from the coming from the going to <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit about Buddha Dharma and Sangha so uh, I'm going to um, talk about it from my own point of view and my own understanding there are many ways to understand that um, uh, the three treasures. So Buddha, we say, is our fundamental 
nature. The nature of uh, cats and dogs, trees and rubble. We say Buddha nature. So when we talk about Buddha, it's, um, it's not a statue on the altar, although the Buddha statue is part of Buddha nature, an a, a attribute of Buddha nature. But uh, Buddha nature is the nature of everything. We all have or are Buddha nature. That's our fundamental nature. So when we say, I take refuge in Buddha, when Buddha was um, on his deathbed, uh, Ananda asked him oh, who should be the leader of the Sangha. And uh, Buddha is reported to have said, um, you should, we all take refuge in ourself. So that's a big koan. What does it mean to take refuge in yourself? Does that mean to take refuge in your self-centeredness? In your ego? What is our self? So that's a big question. When he says, take refuge in yourself, what is the self? That's the study of Buddha Dharma. When we understand what is the self, it's called enlightenment. <laughs> so then, Dharma is our wisdom, Buddha's wisdom. So there, there are two aspects. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you as if you don't know all of this, but you probably do. So, so I have to talk about it as if you don't. Um, there are two, a two, kinds of, two aspects of Dharma. One is the uh, reality, the teaching, the wisdom, and the other side. That's Dharma with a capital D, Buddha's wisdom. Dharma with a small d means all the little dharmas, all the small, technically it means, uh, it refers to our um, uh, men mental constituents, our emotional constituents, and our attitudes. These are all dharmas. With, um, uh, faith is a dharma, and anger is a dharma. Faith is a good dharma, anger is a not-so-good dharma, right? <laughs> so the dharmas were divided into, some schools had a hundred dharmas, some 75 dharmas. These are the um, uh, physical and uh, mental constituents of our persona. So these are the dharmas which the dharma, big dharma, is illuminating. So when we study our study ourself, study our emotional, mental, and um, uh, various uh, constituencies of our being, we shine Buddha's light on the dharmas, Buddha's wisdom on the dharmas. So we say, basically, when we say take refuge in dharma, we mean to take refuge in Buddha's wisdom. Sangha um, is uh, 
are good friends, right? So technically, dar uh, Sangha is the, um, uh, the family of monks. But actually, that changed, right? In, uh, to become the family of practitioners, uh, this is a, uh, um, the, uh, the narrow meaning of, of Sangha, is those wonderful people that you practice with. But we extend the uh, term dharma, uh, Sangha to all beings, not just sentient beings, insentient beings. There's a sutra that says all sentient beings are preaching the Dharma. Insentient beings, excuse me, insentient beings are, are preaching the Dharma. So what does that mean? Sentient, all, insentient beings are preaching the Dharma. So we make this distinction between sentient and insentient. And we uh, we um, exploit the insentient side because we think that we can do anything we want with it. But the insentient also is sentient. There's no distinction. If you don't make a distinction, then you, you treat everything as yourself. So when we can treat everything as ourself, that's called enlightenment. Sentient and insentient. So this is how we study. Um, uh, so each one of us is the three treasures. I am Buddha, I am Dharma, I am Sangha. You are also Buddha, you are also Dharma, you are also Sangha. Each one of us is all three. These are called the three bodies of Buddha. The Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya. Dharmakaya means the Dharma body. Each one of us is, the, is an aspect of the Dharma body of Buddha. There's no Buddha outside of that. Sambhogakaya means Buddha's wisdom. We all are, have access to Buddha's wisdom. Some, uh, Nirmanakaya means the Buddha who walks and talks and eats and does all those things that we do. That's you. So we're walking, talking, eating, stupid. We say, you know, Buddha nature is not limited, or Buddha is not limited to, to the good or bad. When we do things uh, that are detrimental, it's detrimental Buddha. When we do things that are helpful, it's helpful Buddha. So we can't escape from Buddha, no matter how hard we try. And we really try hard. Sometimes we say Buddha is an obstacle. That's true. Buddha is a big obstacle. So how do we not be an obstacle? How do we overcome our, op uh, our op opposition to Buddha? The half we're half Buddha and half ordinary. This is what my old teacher used to say. Half Buddha and half ordinary. So uh, ordinary is self-centered. And Buddha is not self-centered. 
So we contain both of those sides. So how do we make those sides, two sides, one? Sometimes uh, our ego wants to lead, and then we get into trouble. And so we say, come on, Buddha, and then Buddha leads, and we follow. And then we say, oh, well, maybe I want to lead. So we have this thing going all the time. Who's leading, Buddha or me? So how do we uh, put the two together so that it's one thing? It's very simple. We do this. This is um, ego side that has five, five uh, characteristics. And this is the Buddha side, which has five characteristics. And when we put them together, it's one thing. That's why bowing is such an important practice for us. That's what, Buddha, that's what bowing means. We bow to cats and dogs, to pillars and trees, and to people we don't like. So that's a little um, uh, one way of talking about um, the three treasures. So Max, uh, introduced a theme for the retreat, which is the seven factors of awakening. And as part of the formal beginning of the retreat to create the context for what holds our exploration of the Dharma and for our practice, Amel brought in the three refuges, which in a few minutes we'll uh, recite. And then uh, the, uh, the other kind of container support for the retreat are the five precepts. And um, it's kind of remarkable for some people to come into this kind of retreat environment uh, because of how safe it is. Not everyone feels safe, but um, the, um, you know, it's a place where if you had left your wallet on the dining room table and come up here, it would be there when you came back, or someone, someone, if some retreat a few, uh, a couple of years ago, um, somehow had dropped their wallet on the floor somewhere, in the, and um, someone put it in the lap of the Buddha downstairs. And it took a couple of days for the person to realize that he had lost his wallet, so the wallet just sat there in the lap of the Buddha downstairs, and it was safe; it didn't go anywhere, it didn't disappear. It's kind of remarkable that, I shouldn't say this because now you'll be frightened, but that, um, you know, it's, uh, some people don't notice that they're living in a building, in a place for seven days where the doors aren't locked. I mean, that's kind of, you know, quite unusual. Very few people have that experience in certainly in urban life. And, um, and I think here, people feel safe doing that. It feels like not, not an issue. And, um, and to live with a community of 40 people and have a sense of safety that is a phenomenally important gift that we give each other. There's some, even if we feel conventionally safe, even some of us feel generally lots of fear in our lives, um, there's something uh, deep inside of us that can relax or settle 
when we have created an environment where, you know, within reason, it's a safe place. And, and so, uh, uh, at the beginning of the retreat, to kind of start the retreat, we recite the five precepts. And that's to remind ourselves of a commitment we have together here. But in being a ritual, kind of, it's also speaking to something that's kind of almost our subconscious, something that's deep inside. Uh, who knows what's deep inside that is really touched and needs to be touched, could be touched, by really feeling into the safety that comes from our, our collective intention to live harmless lives, to be harmless in, in our interactions with each other and not to cause harm. And so the first precept is uh, not to kill. The second precept in English, is, uh, in ordinary English, would be not to steal. The third precept on retreat is interpreted to mean to be celibate. The fourth precept is uh, not to lie, which is expanded into the retreat context to hold, be committed to noble silence, which means is to, except for functional speech, that take care of things, is that uh, we're, we're silent during the retreat. And the fifth uh, precept is to avoid uh, taking drugs or alcohol that uh, makes you crazy, that intoxicates you or makes you confused or deluded or something. And, um, and these five things uh, create safety. Um, some people have traumatic backgrounds of lack of physical safety and experience a lot of violence. And so for them to be able to really do Dharma practice, uh, it's to come to a place where they feel that there's a commitment to nonviolence. Some people have had traumatic experiences of things, of, you know, being things stolen from them and homes being broken into and cars broken into or robbed at gunpoint and of their things. And it can really sear a heart and shrink it and cause traumatic you know, long-time effects. Some people, some people, most people, have been harmed through sexuality somehow or other and struggled with this whole issue. And so, uh, to come to a place where they feel that there's not going to be encroached on in any kind of way, in a sexual way, and everyone keeps their sexuality to themselves, um, is uh, not only is it allows people, some people, to really um, relax in a way they don't in ordinary society, but perhaps even to heal something that they've, uh, you know, deeply, uh, you know, they carry, have hurt, they carry. And uh, some people have been lied to in ways that feel like dramatic betrayals. And uh, to be around people who are committed to being honest is a beautiful thing. And um, as a teacher, I mean, people talk to the teachers more than they talk to each other on retreat. And, um, and so it's quite remarkable when people come and to come up to a second interview and say, well, I need to apologize about something I said. And they explain what they said and how it was a little bit off. And, <laughs> you know, and I'm so, I'm so touched. You know, it's very moving for me to have someone who's that sensitive when it seems like a relatively minor thing, but somehow it looms really big. And the fact that it's kind of, that people have this sense of conscience or concern around this, and I think it's really beautiful. And then, uh, and we know that a tremendous amount of pain in our society and individuals around uh, addiction issues, and um, and some people come here 
who are struggling with addiction issues of all kinds. And so um, to create an environment that's an oasis, an island, away from the temptations is such an important gift of what we give. And so if there are people crossing that line and starting to use here, um, even if you think it's okay for yourself, um, uh, it has a ripple effect out into this community and to create a place that doesn't feel so safe for some people who are here. So the Buddha called the five precepts the five gifts. And um, I like to, I think he had in mind they were gifts to others. They're also gifts we give to ourselves. Because um, uh, it turns out that um, to live a life that's harmless expresses, I think, the deepest wellsprings of our intention, our motivation of how we want to live. That when we don't live, when we live kind of in ways that cause harm, especially if it's done intentionally, I think of it as coming from the surface mind, from the surface of who we really are, uh, from some confusion, lack of connection to ourselves. And so to live by the precepts is also a, a gift to ourselves, uh, so that uh, we could feel safe, so that we can trust ourselves, so we can you know, allow ourselves to settle in deeply. And Max, when he talked about um, you know, that, that just practice just for the moment, show up for this moment. Um, it's pretty phenomenal that you can be ethical for this moment. Pretty amazing that, uh, in, you know, in this moment you haven't killed anyone or stolen anything or sexually abused anyone or lied or been intoxicated. C celebrate that, appreciate that. And then the next moment, in the next moment, it's a really important part of what we do here to to kind of as a the the support, the foundation, but also the expression of the practice, the expression of our awakening, expression of coming home, uh, these these five precepts, and also the refuges. So I think as a ritual, as a way of speaking to the depth of our being and to each other as a community so that uh, all the different ways in which people need to hear this, there's many ways that you don't know how all this touches people and how it supports the range of who we are here. And uh, We do this collectively so we can all hear each other say it and understand that this is the common ground by which we will live together for these days. So I'll recite the precepts in Pali, uh, first, I mean the refuges in Pali, first by um, uh, we'll chant the homage to the Buddha that star starts Namo Tassa, and then uh, we'll do the refuges, and um, and then we'll recite uh, the precepts in English. For the Pali, I'll do uh, one whole line at a time, and you can follow, repeat. Those of you who don't know, I can't learn it from one line, um, you get full credit by humming along. And um, if that's your, if your intention is to follow along. And then uh, for the English and the precepts, uh, I'll do the, uh, half the sentence uh, and then repeat and then I'll do the, you'll do the other half. Namo tasa bhagavato arato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arato 
Samma Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddham Sarananga Chami Dhammam Sarananga Chami Sangam Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Buddham Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Dhammam Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Sangam Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Buddham Sarananga Chami Dhatiyampi Dhammam Sarananga Chami Dhatiyampi Sangam Sarananga Chami For the sake of our training together, I commit myself not to kill. For the sake of our training together, I commit myself to not take what is not given. For the sake of our practice, our training together, I commit myself to be celibate. For the sake of our training together, I commit myself not to lie. For the sake of our training together, I commit myself not to get intoxicated. So thank you very much for doing that. I take it as a important contribution, an important act, and it will hopefully support us as we go through the retreat. 
is uh, if you find yourself from time to time challenged on the retreat in some kind of way or other, uh, one of the things, one of the options you have is to call upon the refuges or call upon the precepts. They're here and they're quite powerful and supportive. And perhaps that will buoy you or inspire you and help you kind of see your practice through uh, maybe a difficult time. So it's um, 8.30 and some of you have traveled a long way to get here and been busy making arrangements to be here. So by design, we end at 8.30 so we can go to bed. And so I would encourage you to go to bed and get a good night's sleep. Uh, in the morning, there'll be the sitting, the wake-up bell at 5.30 and the sitting at 6. And then at 6.40, there's a period of uh, Sangha service. And uh, if you are can't find the tools you need for your particular job or if you don't know quite what to do, the managers will be wandering around and you can check in with them and they'll support you. And uh, if you're full of vitality and ready to ready to meditate, you're welcome to stay in the hall and sit into the evening if you like. But if uh, you're not sure what to do, my advice is you go to bed. So, good night and thank you for being here. Yes. <laughs>